Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and today's guest is Dr. John Kane, who is an assistant professor of radiation oncology and biomedical informatics lead at the University of Washington in Seattle. In this interview, we dive deep into his work on using natural language processing to examine broader trends in the mammal space, such as in how cancer funding is distributed in NCI grants. I learned a lot about NLP and how it can be leveraged to do some very cool work. Dr. Kang is a deep thinker and has great perspective on both the granular and macro level. I hope you all enjoy. So Dr. Kang, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Uh, this is the first question that we ask every guest. I was wondering if you could tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning. Uh, thanks for that question, David. So um, I've always had an interest in applying uh, the technical side to medicine. Uh, my undergraduate was in engineering, and um, um, I did uh, like summer research in undergrad, which got me interested in, in research. Um, so I started looking into MSTP programs, and I went to um, the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon joint uh, MD-PhD program. Um, where um, I uh, did my PhD in computational biology at Carnegie Mellon University, and I took a graduate level machine learning class, which was by far the by far the hardest class I've ever taken before. Um, I, you know, all my classmates were like computer science uh, machine learning graduate students, and I didn't. I, I still year remember. This was? I'm sorry. Can I ask what year this was? 2020, 2011. Wow. 2010, okay. 2011, yeah. yeah that, wow. <laughs> yeah, this was old school. This was before deep learning was kind of like a buzzword. Before there, ImageNet. Before, yeah, before ImageNet, before, um, um, yeah, before the current revolution in, in deep learning for sure. Um, so um, I remember my first, like one of my first assignments like it, it, uh, it asked me like what uh, what is the objective function? And I remember thinking I don't even know what an objective function is. So that was kind of like my uh, lack of knowledge going into this class. Um, it, it was a required class for our PhD program, but you know I think one of the things you kind of learn is when you're not in medicine is that um, you know things outside of medicine it's there's no like uh, like like a, a trail of breadcrumbs. <laughs> you know, medical school, you do residency, you know, like, like you're surrounded by people who do the, exactly the same thing pretty much. So you all do the same thing. But when you go into, uh, I think something like machine learning or probably almost all the other sciences, people come from it from different backgrounds. And, mm. and um, so, you know, my background was not in machine learning, but, but the promise of you know, going through the, the problem sets, kind of seeing, um, seeing the applications and uh, and uh, learning the fundamentals really got me piqued my interest basically. So uh, since then, I've always since my grad school years, I've always wanted to use machine learning in medicine in some capacity. And uh, thankfully, I had the technical background from undergrad and grad school to to kind of do that. So um, um, one of the reasons I went into radiation oncology for uh, residency was because I knew this was a field that I did a lot of modeling. Um, you know, simulations, uh, um, using a lot of uh, data sets, both intaking and producing data. 
that was kind of the technical side of why I went into the field. Um, there were other reasons like from the clinical side, but the technical side was there. Um, and uh, during my residency at the University of Rochester, um, yeah, there's no real like formal pathway to keep learning machine learning during like another full-time job basically. Yeah. But, um, I use Coursera classes. Wow. And, yeah. So during residency. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. It was, uh, I think it helped to have that background, you know? Um, so Coursera classes and then getting involved in writing some review articles um, in, you know, some kind of just some perspective articles about how um, data driven models, machine learning can be used in radiation oncology. And I mean, I, I guess I was lucky I rode the wave, you know, deep learning became popular. I resisted that for a while, um, but, you know, you got, you know, eventually cut into it. And then what do you mean I, you I, resisted I, it? Good question. So um, uh, the honest answer is you know, when I was, when I took my uh, early classes, you know, neural networks was just one, one of the models. And we focused a lot on, you know, sport vector machines, you know, uh, lasso regression. And those had like an elegance to them, like a simplistic elegance. Like it kind of made sense that you would want to create a classifier, um, you know, an SVM, for example. I think that's a very elegant um, model. You're, you're um, you know, generally you're projecting your data to a high dimensional space, then doing classification in high dimensional space. Um, and then, uh, so then you've basically you've kind of transformed your data and make it easier to classify. And I think mm -hmm. that I thought that was really cool. I think I, I and to be fair, I don't think I was the only one. There was, um, a, there was a time period I think where SVM was gonna was like the you know the hot hot thing basically. Um, but then I think what what these what I call you know what people can call shallower models, what they lack is the power to leverage the um, the power of computational. Um, mm -hmm. the computational side, parallel, parallel processing, um, GPU accelerated um, mm -hmm. um, tools. So when you add that into the mix, you add deeper, more and more layers, more and more features, then your neural networks are really kind of designed to scale with that, you know? So um, I think that's one of the reasons, one of many reasons why, why it's kind of taken off. Deep learning has taken off again, you could say, it's kind of made a resurgence. Um, um, so, so yeah, I resisted for a while, but then I, I, I went into it, uh, and then, um, then I think the question is, how do you do something unique that, how do you bring something new to the table? So while I was in residency, you know, AI was, AI medicine was becoming kind of a, 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 a known thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so you kind of, you kind of, um, it, it's tough to kind of keep up to kind of do two things at the same time, basically. To do um, medicine as well, like your residency training as well as yeah, keeping yeah. up with it. I, I agree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not, in, you know, it's definitely not impossible, but you need, uh, you need some type of motivation. Um, you need mentorship. And I had, I was lucky to have mentors in that space. Um, and then I think, you know, you probably need to use your, use, you have to be creative and think, what is something that I can do that maybe would be bring something new to the table? Um, because so many people are kind of getting into it. And that's when, so I took an NLP class and then I, I really fell in love with our natural language processing. So was that um, also on Coursera? 
Yeah. Wow. Was, uh, I all my modern AI kind of knowledge. I I guess I can um, thank Andrew Ng and and his his um, um, com, com, compadres. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I, I think he created this deep learning AI. I guess company or educational platform, but they partner with Coursera. So there's several specializations now. Deep learning mm -hmm. is one of them. NLP is one of them. Actually, um, they have an AI and medicine specialization. That's another one of them as well. So. Would you recommend, have you done the AI and medicine specialization? I've done, I think, um, um, I've done most of it. Yeah. Would um, you recommend it to, a, you know, your lay, per, your average med student? That's a great question. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, I guess it no. <laughs> so when, when I first saw it, I thought this, this would, it sounds like it would be great for medical students. Um, when I took it, I realized it's more designed for, in my opinion, it's more designed for computer scientists who want to get into medicine mm. as opposed to medical students or people in medicine who want to get into computer science. Yeah. Um, that, that was my kind of impression. And I say that because they kind of just, it's a tour de force through the actual machine learning. You know, they throw like, you know, they throw out like neural networks right away. They kind of assume um, that you have some background knowledge. That said, I think, I still think it's good. They, they cover things like time, time to event models. Um, and they explain it from the perspective of someone who like has not taken biostats, for example, which I, I, I kind of wanted. Um, so they, they kind of explain it from the ground up and, and I actually really like their lectures on like proportional hazards, Kaplan-Meier. I feel like, I think it was probably better than what I had previously learned. So, um, and they, they take it and they, they approach it from the perspective of a machine learning researcher. So it'll, it's, a, it'll be a little different than taking it from the perspective of your typical biostats class. Mm. It's and it's yeah. So I would recommend it, but you know, just uh, um, it it might be a little over your head if you have like no experience in machine learning. I would say makes me think. Oh, if only there was something that was for med students interested in computer science. You know, kind of the other way around. If you if you wanna, you know, I'm happy to work. You know, I I proposed this uh, project a while ago. Um, it, um, and um, it uh, we never ended up submitting it, but I think we had all the parts. So. I, I, I'm on board with you, I think from, but it's a, it's a minority opinion. It's not a popular opinion. My I opinion don't know. My hot take <laughs> is there's a big untapped market for now, especially now that step one is pass fail and a lot of students <laughs> yeah, are looking right. for ways that to so much, yeah, differentiate themselves. <laughs> yeah. You know? no, I, you are, uh, so you're absolutely right. I think I, I like, I like how you're thinking. So differentiating yourself is very important because again, because when you're in medicine, you, you know, maybe assembly line is too strong of a word, but you're all trained yeah. the same way, right? And um, how do you how do you differentiate yourself? Now that, um, it, and I think when I was in medical school, I used to think um, that, you know, we're all pretty much interchangeable. And <laughs> that, that's kind of, that's kind of like the, when, when you think of, um, I guess, the corporatization of medicine and how, you're just a cognitive wheel, so to speak. Yeah. You, you kind of get that sense, but but now that I'm kind of on the recruiting side and um, um, you know, we interview medical physics residents, physicists, uh, faculty candidates, med um, 
residents, uh, medical residents, candidates, there's a huge, you know, difference, right? Like, um, it would definitely, um, uh, definitely not the same research interest, personality, like there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of variables basically, you know, that make up somebody. So I agree with you that distinguishing yourself through something like um, having a deeper understanding of AI medicine is important. So, you know, going back to the, what I was saying is, is that, um, yeah, I think it, there could be a big untapped market, but I think um, a lot of people think that doctors don't need to know the fundamentals of machine learning. And the fundamentals is kind of like not well-defined, I guess you could say. Um, but, you know, certainly the classic model has been that something like a genomic test, you know, it, it could be 70 genes, 20 genes, whatever. Um, you know, human doesn't really have the capacity to understand how 20 variables interact with each other. Yeah. But if you create this classifier and then you test it in a trial and it has a positive, uh, it meets its endpoint, um, then the FDA will stamp it, give a sample approval, and now I can use this without really understanding how this, how it actually works, right, under the hood. Um, and the FDA is going through kind of this discussion about how to regulate uh, software as a medical device. Um, because I think it's it's something that hasn't, you know, uh, it's a new, basically new concept, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it looks like it's going to go under, it's going to be called a device um, as opposed to, I, I guess, I don't know, maybe like a lab test or something. But but then the questions are how, you know, how often do you, um, how often do you have to up, um, like, let's say there's, you get more data and you want to update oh, yeah. it, you know, Updating. what's the regulation mm -hmm. for that? Um, how do you have to make sure that it, it performs well in different populations? Um, you know, within different population demographics. There's all, all these other questions now that you can ask. So um, um, I think I think for physicians, my opinion is for physicians, for physicians to just say the FDA will figure it out is a bit of a, um, um, well, I, I don't think that's the best solution basically. Yeah, we actually, I've actually interviewed someone from the FDA Digital Health Center of Excellence, and mm -hmm. they are the ones that are, you know, setting these regulations. And yeah, it's, yeah. to me, one of the biggest things, my, one of my biggest takeaways was I was, you know, they're just, they're humans too. And yeah. we're all just kind of making it up as we go along. Right. And, and yeah. yeah, like it's novel for everyone. And I really like that they're, I think they're aware of this. Okay. Um, and they are aware that they're imperfect and they're really trying to collaborate with people who are creating these medical devices or these software as medical devices. Sure. Um, and it's, I mean, I guess it's, we're in an exciting time because we're making it up as we go along, but it's also a little yeah, terrifying yeah. too. Yeah. I think that's a good, that's a good summary. Yeah. I think people have, people are, people have good intentions and people want to do the right thing in general, but there's, this is a complex question and problem, a tool. And I think, you know, you can't just use the same framework that you use for, I don't know, drug development, for example. It, it's, um, um, yeah, it, it's exci exciting. It's, it's definitely the, a, a correct word. Um, you know, I, I hope that physicians can learn more about machine learning, understand 
basic concepts. You know, something, you know, I think we could probably debate how well biostats is taught in medical school, but at least kind of like an awareness of the, the pitfalls of machine learning. Um, you know, some something really important that I think is, uh, you know, we don't really teach doctors or just don't teach well, not just doctors, but in general, is how do you evaluate a model? You know, what are the pros and cons of the different performance metrics like sensitivity and specificity, um, positive predictive value? What is an AOT curve? You know, like, you know, people, you know, uh, should we use AOC curves? Um, short answer is no, but right, but, but why not? So um, and those are important questions that I think, I think physicians should know. And I think, you know, people who use machine learning in their respective field should understand the pros and cons of these things. But I think there's not enough, the research is coming out too fast that there's not enough people who I think are qualified to kind of evaluate the research because it is, you know, it's just, we're not at the steady state yet. And, um, and uh, you know, people were, uh, there's, I think a lot of people go into industry as well. So um, there's not enough, I guess you could say, people to teach the next generation, um, at least in school. Um, so, and it's another, that's a topic for a whole nother discussion, but when you go to industry, you know, you might be super brilliant, but you're working on problems that are maybe not as, I don't know, helpful to humanity, I should say. Um, yeah. I think they would agree, you know, you know, increasing your ad clicks or something is probably not as helpful to humanity as, I don't know, finding a better uh, screening test for cancer, or something like that, right? So, mm. um, but maybe that's controversial. I feel like these are some some good tangents that we've gone yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think that I think the question was tell me about my path in the intersection. Yeah, and then I guess I was wondering how would you describe some of the most exciting research that you do? Um, perhaps you know, to like a medical student or someone uh, more like layperson. Sure. So I think um, one thing that I've become really interested in is um, unsupervised learning. So. Um, I think a lot of the exciting research that we have, uh, examples in, in the mammal space, I'll, I'll start using that terminology now. Oh, is, thanks. It <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is often uh, supervised. So super, the difference, so what is supervised learning? Uh, supervised learning is your, your classic, you, you give a model uh, uh, inputs where you have uh, X and Y, basically. So you have your inputs and your outputs. So classic example, I guess, would be um, if you're training a classifier to detect melanoma um, using like skin pictures or something, maybe you would give it pictures of melanoma and non-melanoma that has been biopsied so you know that it's for sure one or the other. And then you just train your classifier, maybe your, you know, your um, neural network to recognize patterns representative of melanoma. So the, the key thing there is that you need to have a, a label. It, it sensibly should be biopsied. And, you know, you can talk about surrogates for that, but, but basically you, you should know what, what, what the actual ground truth is, right? In the mammal space, that is the, bo the bottleneck is that um, um, finding those labels is, is expensive and hard and typically requires, often it will require um, 
the expertise of your, you know, um, uh, board certified physician, right? A radiologist, a dermatologist, a pathologist to say, this is, this, this is excess, or this is, you know, this is a, a true or a false label. Um, but um, another potential tool is unsupervised learning. And that's when you don't have your labels. Um, so you just have your inputs, which is generally, you know, there's a lot of inputs. Um, the question is, how can you, um, how can you extract information from just the inputs, right? And if you don't have the labels. Um, and and th this goes, um, this is a long-standing question. And um, one of the most humble, you can say one of the most humble um, methods that we learn about in machine learning is clustering, um, where you essentially assign um, your inputs to belong to a cluster based on how similar they are. And um, that that in and of itself is not is you know not not necessarily the most innovative thing, but uh, but I think. If your answer is, you know, I think there's, I think there's maybe um, a pattern, um, a pattern here for melanoma or, or non-melanoma based on the inputs. You know, let me just look at the inputs and see, does it seem like the inputs kind of group into two clear clusters? And sometimes, if you're lucky, they they will. Um, and um, um, when we want to apply uh, un, uh, unsupervised learning to something like uh, text to to um, um, uh, natural language processing, we can leverage pre-trained um, pre-trained word embeddings, which are representations of words that have been trained on just billions of um, corpuses of, of text, basically. So. Things like ChatGPT, BERT. Um, I was just going to ask about that. Like yeah. ChatGPT. Yep, word to back. So, so um, they uh, they all they're all built upon word embeddings, which are unsupervised, which have been trained in an unsupervised fashion from just text. And I think that's a very very elegant um, uh, approach. So, um, I. We, I could, we could talk about word embeddings, you know, in a little more detail, but I think leveraging, um, leveraging word embeddings has the promise to unlock a lot of knowledge um, in a minimally supervised or an unsupervised fashion um, in, um, in oncology and, and likely in many other uh, spaces as well. So, um, Sorry, how would you describe like, what a word embedding is? So um, uh, a word embedding is a representation of a word. Um, so you can, if you think of all the words in the English language, basically, um, um, how do you represent what a word is so that a computer can understand it, right? Um, you know, word doesn't really mean much to uh, um, uh, an algorithm. Um, and text is just sequences of words. That's fundamentally a different data set than, say, a, an Excel sheet where you have rows and columns, and you can think of a row as, you know, an individual person, and the columns as maybe their lab values or features that describe that person. So text is different. So um, one of the keys to unlocking NLP has been uh, 
more and more clever ways to train word embeddings in an efficient way, such that a computer can understand what, what a word is. So um, Word to Vec um, was developed by Google around 2011. And um, the way that the, the concept there is that a word is, uh, the, the meaning of a word is defined by the surrounding words. So it's, oh, that's it's, pretty cool. It's a, it's a pretty elegant system. Yeah. The idea being that if you find words that occur together, they have a similar meaning. And if you find um, other words, so like words that, for example, are about medicine, they're all going to co occur, right? They're all going to be within a few words of each other. Um, um, but words that relate to maybe auto manufacturing are going to be um, also co occurring, but probably there'll be separation between that and medical words. That's so fascinating. It, it almost reminds me of like colors, you know, like colors in a painting will like co-occur. Um, yeah. Again, yeah. a picture, you know. Like exactly. Yep. So, um, so if you if you train a neural network to output like, let's say a two hundred dimensional or three hundred dimensional vector, and you feed into it um, different. Uh, different sequences of these words. Maybe you maybe you uh, give it the surrounding words and you try to predict the word in the middle, or you give it the word in the middle and you try to predict the surrounding words. So there's a couple of ways to kind of train your word embeddings. But but in general, as you can you know tell by the by how the descriptions of of uh, the context word and the surrounding words are, in general the the model should be learning um, high dimensional representations of these words such that words that co-occur together will have simple but similar um dimension out like or similar values in their vector basically you know th that is kind of a physician's understanding of a uh, word to vec but i i think it it, it kind of gets at the, the the concept of it um so if you um there's uh, james out for example uh, he, I know you interviewed him a few uh, earlier, and uh, he so he's published, for example, on debiasing word vectors. So you know these word vectors, for example, word to vec, I believe was trained on all of English Wikipedia, and then something else, maybe maybe some other encyclopedia. Um, but it's um, your word and vectors, uh, word embeddings, they will represent they will be representative of the text that you train on. So if you train on text that's you know, from the 1800s or before, um, you're gonna your word embeddings will will reflect, say, the, the biases of the time. So, for example, um, th these are pretty famous examples. But when you looked at, say, words that were more related to women, they were like homemaker, nurse. Um, so, and if it was men, it was like you know, I don't know, um, scientist. Uh, uh physician you know so so um um there's ways to actually kind of degender your words by by giving your um by by finding all these gendered words and then subtracting them so this is actually vector math which is kind of interesting and you find the the vector that points in the bias direction of gender bias and then you can kind of subtract that from words to kind of degender them so to speak that's super cool yeah yeah so so this is the kind of cool stuff that um 
I think you know NLP um, working in NLP kind of uh, lets you uh, take advantage of. Um, it, it's I think NLP the challenging part about text I think is that it's not as obvious as as images um, or maybe some other domains, and that you kind of have to. Um, it's uh, I think text is a, a lot more in the kind of the reader to kind of interpret than say an image where I think a lot of people can agree on on things. But, but with text, you know, two people could have vastly different interpretations of the text. So I think that domain knowledge, the subject matter expertise plays a bigger role. Yeah, someone who just took the USMLE, you know, a lot of these board style questions, uh, as after you, you've done like a couple hundred, maybe even a couple thousand of them, you mm -hmm. kind of just notice like board clusters, you know, like yeah. ground yeah. glass opacities. Exactly, or, yeah, bi you know, bilateral, bilateral, uh, not enough of the yeah they should yeah, always yeah. cluster together with the same conditions and exactly right so that's that's that same concept yeah so imagine that you know at scale um yeah and it's funny i think i think uh there's been models that have been able to answer the use some of the questions like oh yeah uh, like 50 percent right or 60 percent or, or some high i think chat like gpt through or chat gpt just passed uh, step one step two step three <laughs> yeah <Which> is, <laughs> yeah yeah but uh, i i saw that you applied your nlp work to um to the funding that is uh, i was wondering if we could talk about that project i thought yeah, it was pretty cool yeah. yeah so i think um this was an example of kind of using word embeddings to maybe to answer a question that i i think people are curious about but haven't really thought of from the, um, from leveraging word embeddings so, so if you recall, with word embeddings, um, the embeddings um, uh, words that co-occur together will have similar embeddings, right? So, let's say, um, um, so in this case, we were interested in what the NCI has been funding in radiation oncology slash radiology over the past twenty years. Um, the data didn't let us separate radiation oncology radiology, so it's combined. Um, if you go to NIH's website, you can download like a, a tables of data which have um, um, like the institute that was funding it, the PI, the years, the amount, the city, um, and also even some like funding categories, and also some like NIH generated keywords as well. So, so you have that, but you, and you can also download the the abstracts of the funded grants. So these are typically a couple of paragraphs. Um, where the investigators just kind of summarize their research project. Um, currently, in our field, radiation college, every few years, the, the, the leadership in our field uh, does like a survey, um, um, sends out surveys to chairs of different departments, and um, maybe looks at the funding. They, they manually will, will review the funding for that year and give it a category. And, and maybe there there might be like a dozen categories or so. And from what I can tell, they're kind of manually created. Um, it's it's all pretty much manually created. It's supervised, um, huh? Supervised, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's essentially supervised. Um, but what if? Uh, so there's a couple of limitations. Limitations one, um, someone has to be reading these. Someone has to be giving it a label, and um, it's basically does not scale. Um, you can only do you know a few hundred of these at a time 
and you know if you start labeling and then you're like oh maybe there's another category uh, i didn't think about this category now you have to go back and then see you know see should i have moved my categories around it'll just take forever basically. yeah it's like a big sorting problem huh? exactly it's a big sorting problem but and you don't even kind of know how many um, yeah how many bins you have how many right? bins to have right so you're going to keep you'll have to keep adjusting that um so what if you can what if we can leverage what we know about word embeddings to cluster for us right um so what we did was we uh, downloaded the abstracts, converted them to word embeddings. Um, these are so these are bio word to vec embeddings. So they are trained on like biomedical data. They're trained on Mimic three, um, which is a, a, an open ICU data set from um, Beth Israel Hospital. Um, it's a pretty uh, popular biomedical data set. Has like clinic notes. But it also is trained on um, uh, like uh, open access publications like PubMed Central uh, text. So these vectors, so these word vectors, you know, that they'll they'll have that context of kind of a biomedical uh, literature, basically, and also some clinical literature as well. So uh, we converted our our words uh, after pre-processing, converted them to word uh, bio bio word to vec tokens, and then we um, convert them to document. Tokens. So we basically just averaged the firework effect tokens, but we also weighted the tokens by um, how important they are. So, so this is kind of an interesting maybe thought exercise. Is that you know, let's say you have a bunch of documents. How do you know that a word is important in that document, right? How uh. a word like the or a that's going to be in all the documents, right? So you probably throw them out or don't want to weight them highly, but if you're looking at NCI grants, the word cancer is probably going to be in most documents as well. That won't be that important either. Yeah. So, so there's there's different. You know, one of the common word word weighting um, methods is called TF IDF, which I uh, stands for term frequency times inverse document frequency. So it's a multiplication. Essentially. Um, it tells you how often the term occurs in your document. But if that term also occurs in other documents, um, then it gets weighted down. So ah. if, if your term is really occurring a lot in, in your grant, right, um, that will make it go up in importance. But if that term is also occurring in other grants, it'll make it go down. So so it's a, it kind of balances out. So, so we weighted our word tokens with this weighting factor, basically. And then we um, we applied uh, a, a clustering method. Um, we we called it like sequential hierarchical clustering. Um, the the whole idea was to make it so that um, you don't get a different clustering every time you do your initial seeds for um, k-means clustering. Um, so essentially, it was a stable it was a stable clustering. The initial seeds were set by hierarchical clustering and then we did k-means clustering but you know that's a that's all fancy talk for saying yeah we essentially, <laughs> it's a little over my head I'm we, a, we, a neophyte. no problem so basically we grouped the grants that were clustered um that were uh near each other into into uh clusters basically so so i guess would that mean like if it's like a prostate cancer grant, does that get grouped with other prostate cancer grants? Um, 
Is that um, is that kind of kind of, kind of yeah exactly kind of so um, um, one of the things you have to choose up front so this so this is a I think a, a limitation is that you have to give it the number of clusters oh I see I yeah. see so we we tried both fifteen and sixty clusters um, fifteen was kind of found like um, fifteen the model predicted would have optimal clustering performance. But we thought 15 was too few, basically. There's more than 15 research areas or interests or categories um, in, in cancer research for radiation oncology. So we, we basically manually chose 60. This kind of makes me think of, uh, you, you know, like evolutionary trees, like the phylo, phylogenetic trees and how yeah. it kind of like when species diverge. Um, do you think that is a form of clustering? So hierarchical clustering, I think, is essentially, um, yeah, it, it, it is related, I think, to like a phylogenetic tree. Yeah, basically, basically you know, you have your leaves, um, the leaves that are similar going to the next node, and they keep um, getting closer and closer. I think there are some interpretation issues um, where kind of, so I will say there's probably, a, I think there's a caveat where um, the distance, just because you're on the same, I guess, uh, hierarchy, I guess, mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that you're more, that you're closely, more closely related. Um, oh, oh, okay. 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 Because I don't know, I guess the image that I have in my mind is like, um, you know, say we're in a zoo and you have like 200 monkeys. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe like to the untrained eye, they just look like 200 monkeys, but I guess science throughout the times has like clustered these monkeys into their like certain respective yeah, yeah. lineages or right. uh, and have like dis dis distinct, uh, distinctly categorized the monkeys into distinct clusters. I'm wondering if there's some kind of uh, almost objective way to like cluster things and like, you know, have these distinctions between clusters or, or maybe I'm just, I don't know. What do you think of that thought? Um, so I think if, if we're talking about just the physical characteristics of the animals, um, yeah, I think you could definitely cluster them, um, based on, I don't know, the color of the fur, maybe in the weight or something like that. Yeah. Like you could definitely group monkeys together. Maybe you, you definitely would have adults and then adult monkeys and baby monkeys. Oh yeah. You have clustering like female and male monkeys, right? You wouldn't have to even know that they were kids or adults. But your cluster, if you did it by weight, you would automatically separate them, right? Yeah. That's an example, I think, of unsupervised, you could say unsupervised learning. I didn't need the label of adults and kids, but just by, if I had weight in my input, I probably could have separated them out. Mm. Um, but um, I, I wasn't sure if you were talking about like phylogenetic trees and her hereditary, uh, um, if you're talking about that. I, I guess I was just trying to understand the clustering problem by like thinking of another case where we have clustered, um, you know, distinct things into or clustered like a large number of things into distinct clusters. Mm -hmm. um, um, I don't know. Maybe the analogy is totally off. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a good analogy. I think um, most things, if you you could cluster, um, you know, you don't need labels, and if you just looked at the inputs, you would find that uh, the 
the samples that are similar to each other are going to be similar. And sometimes the label is clear from mm -hmm. it. Sometimes it's not, you know, that, that's a, that's the open question, right? And sometimes it's hard to know if you don't, if this is not your area, you might not want to know what the label is, mm -hmm. right? Like, like the, the baby monkey, the adult monkey, that's easy, but um, maybe only a monkey expert will be able to tell the nuances between the slight uh, you want like the changes, I don't know, like some, yeah. maybe, maybe like some ears are longer than, uh, you know, and, and only only a monkey expert would be able to know that difference. So, so in, the, in, in the case of NCI funding, mm -hmm. did you start out with unsupervised clustering and then afterwards kind of came in and say like, this is yep, this yep. cluster, this is this cluster? Exactly, yeah. Okay. So, so the, the quote unquote, the hard part was easy because we had AI, mm -hmm. we, we, we could, we had, you know, you know. Uh, thank you to BioWertebeck for training that model, and then for the clustering, whoever discovered clustering, to to let us do that. So that even though that was quote unquote hard, it was fast, right? Yeah. You know, um, it no deep learning required. Um, we didn't use like transformers or anything. The hard, the part that took longer is now that we have these clusters. Now we have to go in and label them. Ah. Uh... Yeah. So there's a there's and there's an easy way and a hard way to label the clusters. The easy way, which you can do if you are not like if you don't have domain expertise, you just pick say the top ten word tokens um, that are in that cluster. So you, you, oh right, remember those TF IDF the yeah. weighting. So you know which are the words oh. that are most representative of that cluster. Wow. Um, and sometimes you're lucky and it's clear, and, and some of the clusters were clear like. The radiation cluster had a bunch of words about radiation, so we're like, okay, obviously it's about radiation, but it's not always it. It you know, like most things, it's not going to work one hundred percent of the time. What were some so, of the most difficult clusters to to cluster? Yeah, right, right. So I think um, so. A lot of the genomics ones. Um, uh, um, so there were a couple of like you know DNA repair, DNA damage, um, molecular signaling pathways. Part of it. I think is also once we talk about things that um, um, the with unsupervised learning, the the challenging part is I think labeling your clusters, and labeling your clusters depends on how well you know this area. Yeah, so, yeah. So I'm not a molecular biologist, so you know I I know some, but maybe a molecular biologist would be like, oh yeah, obviously this is I don't know about this subset of DNA repair. And this is the other subset. You know? Yeah. So um, this is cool. This is you know this is the intersection of human intelligence exactly. and artificial exactly. intelligence. And that's yeah. what I like about it is that you know um, I think you could point you know this is good. sorry I'll keep the tangent short. <laughs> no, this is fascinating stuff. So so you probably heard you know a few years ago the computer scientist said we should stop training radiologists, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Right. So <laughs> I think. You know, to their credit, I think the computer science have stepped away from that. They, they realized it's a partnership. But, you know, I think here is an example of, it's not, you know, where it really is important to know the, the field so that you can assign clusters correctly. Yeah. If you didn't, if you weren't in radiation ecology or cancer, it would be very challenging. I, and I know this because I'm working, I worked with medical students in Belgium. So we actually did, um, we did an uh, inter-rater agreement, we did validation. Oh. So um, there was, an inc I, 
uh, I did better basically than my medical students. Of course. Because, <laughs> yeah, and that's not a flex or anything. It's just yeah. I I've taken no more. I, actually, the red, the rad bio boards are really helpful <laughs> because uh, for all those molecular, um, all the, um, um, the the grants of molecular pathways, uh, that was helpful to, to know. So, um, so you know, here's another example where I think you know we do need human intelligence um, with with machine intelligence. Um, so we also. Um, because we artificially chose 60, there were some clusters that basically were like overlapping, which mm -hmm. which is fine. But you know, we tried our hardest to 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 see if there was a difference. But if there wasn't any, um, we would we would still maybe give it a little different name. But um, after uh, uh, one of our another analysis was to see it, you know in in high dimensional space, which clusters are close to each other, and we did find that the clusters that were harder to separate pull apart we're we're closer uh, so, I see. yeah um and the other very interesting thing that i wasn't expecting to find was um so um there's this method called tsne um which allows you to project high dimensions into lower dimensions pca is another example of that but mm -hmm. the tsne is a pretty popular one in machine learning when we project it into two dimensions what's it stand for tsne um uh, I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> How do you spell it? T. Uh, so it's uh, T dash S N E. Oh, it's okay, okay. T distributed stochastic neighbor embedding. Oh. Um, yeah. There's actually, if you Google it, there's a like a, one of the top links is a, a really cool website where you can play around with it. Um, but um, what we found were there were two axes. Um. That the grants fell on, one one my uh, my students were able to tell it was physics and biology, or you could say technology and biology. So the technology grants, like the ones about CT, PET scans, MRI, um, radiation therapy, they were all on the technology side. Yeah. Biology side, you would have your molecular, you know, pathways, mm. your immunotherapy. Um, so that was it was clear that the grants fell on kind of two sides. Mm -hmm. um, but there was another dimension that when I was reviewing the grants, um, I um, came up uh, was was uh, therapy and um, like diagnosis. Okay, okay. So, so that was the other axis. So um, we could basically put our grants on kind of a two by two, like a, a, a or a, a, an X, Y axis. So you had grants that were say therapy and physics, you had grants that were diagnosis and physics, you had grants that were therapy and biology, you had grants that were diagnosis and biology. Um, and that also by putting that in, you could then kind of get a sense of, well, is the NCI funding more therapy? Are they funding more diagnosis? They're funding more therapy, by the way. And wow. they actually, um, I think they, there was another study that was like a manual study, I think, and um, they, they also reported um, that the NCI is funding more therapy. Mm. Um, um, but you can also see the quadrants as well. Um, and the, so, so that was what we say is, you know, the hard part is, is labeling the grants. And, you know, hard is relative. Um, it it kind of depends on how good you want the quality of the naming could be. Mm -hmm. I think um, you could do it pretty quickly and get a pretty rough idea. 
but we actually um, we did a more rigorous way, um, which is taking longer, but hopefully it'll keep better. So we're, we're kind of getting multiple um, people involved, including radiologists. Do you get any um, people from the NCI? You know, like someone who reviews grants. I was wondering, like, have they looked at your clusters and you know have they shared their thoughts? They they have not. Um, I think I'm hoping once this gets published, I'm sure you know the NCI will, will see it. And I think you know this as we discussed, the methodology is not is not that complicated. Yeah. There's better there's better methods to probably find better clusters. Um, there's uh, one of the limitations also we're doing single cluster, single topic or single grant, single cluster. And um, so uh, some grants will probably better be described as being in maybe two clusters because they're kind of an equal contribution from two ideas maybe. Oh, they're kind of like a synthesis. Yeah, uh, like in high dimensional space, they're like- Cross-pollinated. Yeah, of. they're like right between. So. So the way the the way the grants get assigned is whatever centroid they're closest to, they're in that cluster. Mm -hmm. so there could be a grant that's like really in between two centroids. Apparently, it's you know it's still whichever one's closer. But you could say maybe it's like thirty percent A, sixty seventy percent B. Um, so th there's um, there's other methods for kind of assignment that we could look at. But you know I think as a proof of concept, I think um, I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, so now that we get the hard part out of the way, which is naming them, then that opens up to now leveraging the this knowledge to all of that tabular data, right? That's you know. So we we have the, the, thankfully the, the the NIH has already told us you know, what cities are getting what funding, what how much funding is going into it, you know, which institutions and what years. So then you can build out um, a lot of knowledge from that. And um, we found that certain topics have emerged over the past 20 years, like a, a, a AI basically is one of them, mm. radio pharmaceuticals, which I've learned from radiologists that that, that is um, kind of a controversial name, <laughs> but, mm. uh, but uh, at least from a radiation oncologist perspective, radi radio pharmaceuticals would be like uh, a, uh, something that you inject into the, into the body that has radioactivity that treats cancer. Is that um, like lutetium 177 yeah yeah that would be one of them like um um do uh it, there's there's like iridium uh, yttrium yttrium um y90 would would qualify i was wondering in your work kind of explore it's kind of cool you're like exploring all of these grants and how they cluster do you think this has helped your own grant writing or future grants? <laughs> well, my grants are currently all data science grants. So uh, that is one of the hot, hot, hottest topics. So I don't think it's helped because I was going to, it's not like I could pivot to something. <laughs> but, but it, so I, long story, it hasn't really helped me. Um, you know, but it's funny, my, my students were really excited because they were thinking, it would help students decide what they want to do research in. Oh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about that. I, I think 
it's you know there's a feedback loop that's going to be well then people are just going to do research in the few areas exactly you can't yeah yeah right. you can't just have but, that positive you got, you know you got to have the exactly the fields you got to be the, exactly you don't want right. to just follow the crowd right exactly right so there's a like if i follow the crowd i wouldn't be doing nlp research because nlp is not well represented it's no. not, yeah it's not even like it's it's not it, we, it there was no signal on it yeah it's like a couple yeah, of years yeah. old yeah well no i don't think I, I wouldn't say is maybe in the rad onk space right yeah in the rad onk space it's new yeah i think that's fair to say yeah so um so right it's it's um just you know i think i think the main theme of maybe my research and of mammal in general is um if you're gonna apply machine learning to medicine you can't apply it blindly you have to understand the context right mm. and and um and you know we can you know, so that's essentially the high level uh, i think the high level uh perspective yeah so yeah. i think i think you know our doctors going to become redundant definitely not um um because they understand the context um yeah and and i i have you know yet to, to see creativity from any of the um i guess the you know all, any of the gpts or um uh, as in like new knowledge um, <laughs> and then maybe that's a controversial take yeah. but I, i've talked to some computer scientists about it but they 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 uh i think i think that true computer scientists are well the computer scientists that i've talked to don't see um, it it's they essentially it's all pattern recognition i've talked to some um some professors recently, and they have experimented with using GPD to write grants. Mm -hmm. And I found oh, that very, oh. huh? Yeah, so oh. they actually said it worked out surprisingly pretty well. The big downside, though, is that it can't provide references. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I talked, I actually ran this by another, actually, this was during one of my residency interviews. <laughs> I was talking to a professor about this. Oh, you and, should, you, this is definitely good to bring up during residency interviews. It's 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 hot. In the, yeah, people in love the, talking about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've learned that GPT is great for writing fire ops. Uh huh. Uh, it saves people uh, a lot of headache. Yeah. Um, but the person who experiment, another person experimented with grant writing, and she said it was she she typed in like a very niche subject, very niche field that she knew well. Um, but she yeah, got a surprisingly really good grant, and then she asked it, "Oh, can you give me more references?" Um, right then it made up references like they were like ghost articles that didn't exist yeah yeah uh, and it was pretty terrifying i was like well, this is kind of weird kind of spooky yeah someone someone i think on twitter posted like a, a, an abstract conference abstract or a, a trial like you know give me an abstract for a trial that that showed that uh, it was a cardiac question and it looked and read and read well but then the exactly the same thing the references were almost bogus the results were obviously bogus um it's fake science so, sorry it's fake you know fake news and fake science yeah yeah i think um if i remember correctly uh chat gpt2 they didn't release the code because it was around the 2016 election i think and they were worried about fake news articles oh wow so i'm not sure chat gpt i mean it, i don't think they released the source code right i think because it's like a private endeavor with Microsoft, maybe. But um, sorry, but I think I think people people have an understanding of like how GPT roughly works. Um, I think I think I think what what I don't know is what it's been trained on. 
but I think you can infer what it's been trained on by what the things that it's doing. Yeah. So I think it's there's there's examples of I would imagine prior auth examples are in there. Definitely grants are in there. I'm curious how they got these they how they got these things. And maybe yeah. I'm wrong. You know, maybe there's if there's no prior auth examples and they just knew how a prior auth letter was generated, that would be more impressive. But um from from my understanding, GPT, they just take in everything. So like some models will only take in kind of like Wikipedia, right? Like text that's well formed. Yeah. GPT takes in Twitter, probably just scrapes student doctor, like anything. <laughs> yeah. So Reddit, all that stuff goes in there. I think, I think, uh, I think, I think if the Reddit post gets above a certain number of like upvotes or something, if I remember correctly, one of the wow. old posts. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just there's a, minute, there's a, minimum, the a minimal filter. Sorry. It's just trawling through. Yeah. All yeah. the human content yeah. on the web. Oh, so so you know, actually, I think um, so. I um, I I would like to see an example of ChatGPT kind of synthesizing something new that I guess is based in reality. Well, here's a hot take, or not a hot take, but actually, a lot of or some fiction authors have been using ChatGPT to help them write their books. You know, when they get in uh when they get writer's block mm -hmm. and they'll just kind of put in some of their writing and then it'll just keep it'll just spew out content and then the, what yeah. they'll do is they'll go in and they'll trim it and then they'll use it and uh, you know is, is that creative is that I not think, you know, kind of a degree area what, what i feel maybe i don't know if this is a hot take or not um i feel like chat what chat gpt what, what these models are gonna be are showing us is that there's a lot of redundancy in a lot of repetition a lot of unoriginality in writing. Yeah, um, yeah. I think a good example, the introduction to most papers is probably very similar. You know, if, oh, yeah. if, if I specialize in radiation oncology for lung and I'm writing an introduction about that, it's probably going to be very similar to almost every other introduction for radiation oncology of lung. Oh, yeah. For, for you know, this specific thing. So, so and, and I think, you know, people, I don't think it's a hot take that a lot of, you know, writing is derivative as well. Um, you know, there's what the classics, uh, hero battle, like oh, hero's journey, hero's journey, right? Yeah, it, it's all variations on that. If it's a sci-fi setting, if it's a fantasy setting, um, Grant Grant's the introduction, pretty derivative, I think. Mm -hmm. um, um, but but the key is like your your specific aims, right? Those should be new. I would like to see ChatGPT's efforts to create a specific aim that no one has thought before. I think it could do it because it's it's uh, the the GPT models. I believe they're they're finding they're they're basically just finding patterns across documents. So if um, it's it's very possible that there's been a, a concept applied in one field that hasn't been applied in I don't know medicine, right? Um, you could say, I mean, NLP maybe hasn't been used in radiation oncology until recently, um, but it's been used in other fields. So ChatGPT could probably pull in an NLP grant or pull in an idea of using NLP, you know. But is that uh, is that new? It depends. <laughs> depends on how you define new. I mean, I, I feel like we're going to reach a day where, you know, AI is going to start doing, like, it'll start with this uh, generating, you know, like you said, these research aims. 
and then there's gonna they're gonna use like like text to code or whatever you know it's gonna create its own code it's gonna do its own like informatics it'll come to a conclusion it'll write it up and then that'll be a paper that is just completely like um self um yeah it, that, that could be terrifying or it could just save us the save us um, a lot of time from the busy work i suppose i i think um I, I think I, I don't know. I, I what I hope is that it'll actually make us think harder about what we spend our time on, like <laughs> like, you know, in, like in a grander meta sense, or, or in, in a grander in... meta, meta sense. Yeah, I think so. Like, you know, and and, and I, I think there is value in maybe everybody writing an essay about I don't know the Revolutionary War or something, right? Like, like maybe kids should, even though there's no new knowledge, just for them to be able to think through the process. And you know, that's like medicine is a lot of that. You're just doing you're doing a lot of things just so you have the experience of doing it. Yeah. Um, you might never use it again, but you've done it and then hopefully that will adjust your neurons so you can do something else that is related to it. But you know, I, I think at some point we don't wanna be doing, say, the equivalent of writing essays about the Revolutionary War when we're, you know, full uh, you know, uh, working full time. Yeah, we would rather have the machine do these rote things for us. Mm. So that's what I, you know, I I think that's what everybody wants. Yeah, the, the the um the holy grail, so to speak, of I think AI in medicine is one of the holy grails is uh, automatically generating notes. Like you just see a patient, you you have a discussion with the patient, your note gets written. Yeah, so for for example, right? I I don't think people would complain too much about that. Um, you can always, of course, edit it, but but that would. You're talking about like the Revolutionary War essays. Some college or some high school students are using it to write their college essays now. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me, but I think it's a you know it 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 it's because college essays are pretty derivative. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 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 I think you know I think it'll make you ask the question you know how should we change. Yeah, you know, I think it'll change things to the better. I think people do things that are derivative because it's been done before and yeah. it's hard to change practice. Um, I'm hoping that GPT will kind of give people a kick in the pants. Maybe you know, maybe instead of writing the equivalent of a Revolutionary War essay in medical school, we should give people more practical experience or or, or you know, write an essay about you know maybe. Open the open the take off the guidelines a little bit and have people kind of explore the creative side a little more. Mm. I, I don't know, but um, do you ever feel? Uh, I I guess this is a feeling that I've been dealing with a lot lately. Is the more that I learn about what ChatGPT is capable of, kind of the trajectory of AI in the mammal space, I've I've actually began to develop more of a fear uh, rather than an excitement. What do you do? You ever <laughs> feel that feeling too? Or like a dread. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not an expert on ChatGPT, so maybe I should be more fearful. But I guess what I've seen so far, I'm not really like prior off, you know, abstracts that don't have references and are just made up. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right. If if there were a bad actor and they just submitted to conferences with fake data, that would be. Oh bad. yeah. Oh, that's terrifying. Oh. I mean, but you know, I think I think they would have. You could you can make up data without ChatGPT. Right? <laughs> I True. think, um, but the, the examples I've seen of ChatGPT generally, I think, are not 
don't give me existential dread, I think. Okay. And I think it's because um, I, I have some I. I have some idea of how language models are trained and kind of how they're doing their learning. And I think if, um, I think that's, you know, I don't have a deep, I don't have deep knowledge of it, but I have some knowledge of it. And, and assuming that my assumptions are, are correct, like I, I, I'm not worried, I suppose. I think, I think mm -hmm. this is, you know, the, the difference between magic and science, right, is do you understand how something works? Uh, if you don't understand how a TV works, is magic right a light bulb it sounds it looks like magic yeah yeah okay so uh, would you mind sharing uh some of your assumptions or understandings that makes you more comfortable with it yeah right so i i still think that gpt is pattern recognition mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. the, the way that um the way that they're um they they work from my understanding you give it a prompt it will um, um, fill in the next, it'll fill in kind of like the next, uh, it, it, it'll generate like text basically, like it'll generate a text that kind of matches that prompt. That, and though the text has been trained on just whatever's on the internet, like the, the meaning of the, of the words in the text has been trained on, what, on the internet, whatever's on the internet. So to me, that's just leveraging all the knowledge that we know to, to do something. It's not generating, it depends on what you call a new idea. Mm. Is, is NLP and Radonk a new idea or is it just application of an existing idea, right? I think when Einstein created theory of learning, like, I don't know if that's the best example, but there's some ideas that have not been ever done before. And you could say those are new, right? Like not just, in your field, but just ever. And maybe that's more in the fundamental sciences because, you know, in medicine, we're often just applying stuff that's kind of been done before. But, you know, that's fine. It, you know, if, if, if something can help me better apply things to my work, that would be fine, I guess, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, but I, I, you know, but if it's, you know, and if AI can create a new, a new theory of, like unification of gravity or something like that. I mean, sure, like we can verify it, but um, I, I, I'm not worried that it's going to somehow take over the world. Mm -hmm. But I think what people will start to will need to realize is kind of how these models work and the limitations of it. Uh, and it's not, it's not surprising that the references it makes up are are fake, because it's 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 just yeah the the, the training data is just well, I, I suppose it, it it gives you a sense of kind of how the model works, the fact that references are fake. I mean, I, do, I think it could look for references that kind of make sense, mm. but maybe that was, maybe that would have added too much complexity you know, to yeah. the model or something. Like, you know, you could think of, you know, it could have used clustering, for example, right? Like, like it, you know, instead of putting a fake reference, it could have at least put it in a reference that was in the field that we're talking about. Mm. That does take me to one of our closing questions is what do you think will be the future of AI in medicine or what will it look like in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, so I think um, the, what we're seeing right now is uh, improvement in our workflow. So um, that includes like auto segmentation, auto contouring. Um, right now it's, um, 
it's um, and we're seeing uh, commercial solutions for that. And that would improve just save us so much time from like individually individually drawing different organs and, and just maybe to give background to the people who are listening. Um, we need to draw the organs and kind of delineate the organs on our CT scans because if we don't draw the organs, we can't calculate how much dose goes to that organ. So that's that's why we segment our structures for dose calculation purposes. That's the main reason. Um, so that will uh, and that 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 it, you know has been a manual task for many years, and now we're seeing auto auto segmentation. And it looks pretty good actually. Um, um, so I think we're at we're at the stage where AI is improving workflow. I think in by ten and twenty years, I think it will it should be at the stage where it's actually improving outcomes. Mm, mm, I like that. So yeah, so uh, um, Andre Decker is a uh, ML researcher from the Netherlands. He gave a talk at Astra, which is the National Radiation Oncology Conference, in twenty seventeen, and I, I think I really liked his. He gave a kind of a big picture overview. Is that uh, you know AI will first improve processes like auto segmentation maybe it'll improve scheduling maybe it'll improve um patient triage but then the 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 harder thing is to improve outcomes so that could be you know maybe it will help us decide what type of um radiation to use what dose to do what dose to use um those are more challenging questions but I think they're doable. And I think you know, with folks such as yourself, people coming up in medicine who have interest in this area, it'll help us move along. Um, I think radiation oncology, we're fortunate. We have medical physicists. They're, they're like half of, basically the, the yin to our yang, so to speak. So um, they have a lot of technical background and they've been doing simulations and computational modeling for, <laughs> for much longer than AI has been a buzzword, basically. So they have, um, so I think they will be able to, um, we have a, a, a basically partners, collaborators to help kind of push AI in, in, in oncology as a whole. And I think we're, we're unique in that, you know, um, other fields of medicine don't have like a technical cohort that work side by side with you on, a, on just uh, in the clinic. Um, so if you, you, you're working in a clinic together, it's much easier to do collaborations together. So I think radiation oncology, I think as it is now, I think it is leading oncology AI right now. Hopefully that's not a hot, too hot of a take. <laughs> but, uh, but I bet on should be so, so upset. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm kidding. I'm that's kidding. fair. That's fair. <laughs> I, I think, I think, you know, I think definitely um, many of my, colleagues um, are working in this space and I think we're making good progress in that space and um, radiologists of course are making progress just in all of medicine but I think within oncology Radon has has a, a big role to play because we have you know medical physics as our partners so shout out to medical physics <laughs> and uh, last question is what advice would you give to yourself when you were just finishing medical school um, it's a good question. I think, um, I think, uh, seek out mentorship. Um, I think, um, 
seek out mentorship not just in your department but in other departments in the country um your current interests um you know it's very unlikely that your interests will be the you'll find someone at your own institution with the exact same interest but it's much more likely you'll find someone across the country maybe even internationally with those interests mm -hmm. so if you if you know you have an interest you it's like seek out mentors um both locally and um at other institutions. I think in general, people like to, people, at least in academic medicine, they like to mentor. There's definitely mentoring styles and people are quite busy, but I think, you know, you'll, you'll get to feel that out. And I think that people who are more interested in mentoring you, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll spend more time. Um, we've got some really cool mentors in radiation oncology um, um, that have really helped shape kind of my perspective um, seek out like workshops. So um, these workshops are a great place to kind of get collective minds together. Mm. So you know, uh, data science workshops um, um, are are pretty popular these days. I'd I'd say, but you know, if you're not into data science, if you're into something else, there's there's workshops for like radio pharmaceuticals, etc. And that's a great way to meet people, kind of build build connections. Um, if you're, uh, so my advice is geared more towards the academic medicine side, um, but I think people people like seeing enthusiasm, people like seeing interest, and um, people like to generally, people like to mentor in, in, our, in, in academic medicine. So that's the advice I would give. Great, thank you so much, Dr. King. It was a real pleasure having you on today's show. Um, a, lot of, a lot of big thoughts to ponder. Thanks, David. Yeah, hopefully it wasn't too much. Oh, it was great. Time. I had a lot of fun. Tangents. All right. Yeah, it was really cool learning about uh, word embedding. Yeah. Great. All right. Have a good one. You too.